0: hi everybody and welcome to life tk the podcast where we talk to women writers editors and journalists in their 30s 40s 50s and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s my name is amanda woitus and i'm your host I have the perfect interview for you today, the day before Valentine's Day, because it's with Mandy Lenkatrin, author of How to Fall in Love with Anyone, a memoir and essays. Before I tease the book, some backstory. Mandy is a professor of English and creative writing at the University of British Columbia, and before there was a book How to Fall in Love with Anyone, Mandy published an essay in the New York Times' Modern Love section called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. You probably know it because it was one of the most-read stories in The Times that year, 2015. In it, Mandy describes this more than two decades-old experiment by a psychologist that was created with the intention of making two strangers fall in love. It was designed to create love in a lab setting. So in the experiment, two strangers sit in a room and ask each other a set of 36 questions, each question more personal than the last and then they stare into each other's eyes for four minutes without speaking. Awkward. So Mandy read about this experiment, and then one night, on a first date, she tried it out. And I don't wanna spoil it for you, so I'm gonna leave you with this little cliffhanger to entice you to go read it. And her book is an expansion on that theme, includes that story of that essay, but it also explores her past relationships, her parents' marriage, her grandparents' marriage, And looks to answer the questions, what makes love work? What makes love last? And does it really work the way we see it working in the movies? Again, I'm not going to spoil any details because I want you to go and read it. But it's so well-researched and dips into science and history and culture. And I think it's just really fantastic. Mandy also writes about love on her blog, The Love Story Project. And you can watch her TED Talk and Google Talk on love. She is a love expert. But before she was a love expert, she was an MFA student trying to figure out her writing career. And I have good news for all of you who are feeling a little impatient with life right now. This episode is for you. Not that Mandy is an impatient person. But I think her story shows just how sometimes the stuff that's worth making takes a while, and you can't rush it. So let's get to the episode. Here's Mandy on life in her 20s.
1: My 20s were very much um, guided by a relationship that I was in. So I spent the whole decade, like I, I made some good decisions for myself, but I, I very much everything I did was sort of in one way or the other shaped around this relationship, which felt very serious and important, um, which started when I was about 20. Um, so I, I basically went like straight from undergrad into an MFA program, um, and I applied to like 10 programs, and I got into one. <laughs> you know, I had no idea what I was doing. It was like 2003, and at the time, most programs were, you either chose to write fiction or poetry, and that's crazy now, because nonfiction is so popular, and there are lots yeah. of programs that offer other genres, but at the time... I was like, well, I'm not a poet, so I guess I'll write fiction. But the reality was, and I figured this out basically the semester before I graduated, which was that I I really just wanted to write nonfiction. And all of my short stories were like very thinly veiled personal (laughs) narratives. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I realized, like, you're actually allowed to write creative nonfiction. Like, this is a thing, which was really exciting. But then I thought, okay, so I got into this one program. Florida State University and I I was not allowed to focus on creative nonfiction, even though they had a couple classes. Um, and I just was like lost. I was in love with this guy who's in the Peace Corps in South America, and I moved to Florida and just like hated my life, and I was like a miserable person. But I I enjoyed one thing, which was teaching. So basically the all the TAs got to teach our own classes, which I now look back on and think that was crazy. I was like 22 teaching like 18 year olds how to write a research paper (laughs) Um, all by myself. It wasn't like I was in someone else's class. It was like, I was considered a TA and we had a lot of guidance, but like I was alone in the classroom every day. I did all the grading and designed the course. Um, and I loved it. And so that was a good thing for me. It was like my refuge from misery and depression, <laughs> which is what I felt otherwise. So yeah, halfway through that year, I transferred to a nonfiction program. And so I, I moved to Washington, D.C. and started a program at American University. And I, I kind of was like, I'm tired of, of investing in this long distance relationship. I'm just going to get on with my life. And do what I want to do. And I felt very empowered. It was very exciting. Um, but what I learned, I think pretty quickly, like I had this idea as an undergrad that the only path to legitimacy as a writer was to do an MFA. And I thought I needed to do it right away because I was like petrified of going out into the real world and having like real life experiences. Yeah. So you know, what I realized once I got into a program doing what I wanted to do. And when I was in workshops with other people writing essays was that, like, I really enjoyed doing it, but I struggled a lot with figuring out what to write about. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that I would do differently, I mean, there are probably a lot of things, but like, I just had so much anxiety about how to be a writer, and there was like one obvious path to me, which was the academic path. And many of my peers were older and had more life experience, and they, they like came in with projects. I would like to have had some more experience in the world, um, which if somebody had told me that when I was like 22, I would have been really annoyed by that.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> because I think so much, so much of like what counts as work when it comes to writing is not putting words on the page. Like a lot of it is just living. Like one of the best things I did in grad school was I was a barista and I was like a competitive barista. like super serious about it. And that was so great because I had this I had access to this other, world that didn't give a shit about my writing and it was like this beautiful culture that was interesting to me and then I wrote about that and like that was awesome
0: that's awesome okay we have to talk about your barista experience because I feel like a lot of people (laughs) in their 20s kind of have jobs like that yeah
1: it was so great it was such a good experience
0: I was in a similar position so this summer the magazine where I worked got relocated and so I was looking for a job and I got offered a job at this. I live in Brooklyn, so I got offered a job at this. <laughs> like, that was such like minutes. <laughs> so, so ashamed. I got offered this job at a um, fancy designer pencil boutique in Soho. And I was like, this actually, after six years working in magazines, I was like, this actually sounds kind of lovely and Sort of like a joke, but maybe it would be good to like do something else that wasn't, yeah. Anyway, I didn't end up taking that job at the pencil boutique, and I really regret it. But
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, being a barista, I think one of the there
0: were a lot of great things about
1: it. The biggest was that I found a community. I lived in Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, and I worked two blocks from my apartment, and so I most of my coworkers also lived in the neighborhood and many of them were like students or artists or whatever. So they it was like this interesting, diverse group of people. And also I got to know like my neighbors cause they would come into the cafe every day. And I felt like a part of something. Yeah. And I had this sense of like being immersed in this really interesting culture of like competitive coffee making, which was amazing. and, and so I was like, yeah, if I don't become a writer, I'll get into coffee, and that seemed like an amazing alternative, which is like a good thing to have. I mean, the other thing was like my MFA program required us to do internships, which was which is good, I think, because they were very explicit about the fact that you're not gonna like financially support yourself as a writer probably. Yeah, and so I did two internships. One was at National Geographic. It was at the international division of national geographic kids magazine and which basically meant like i went to the national geographic building every day which is super cool it has a museum downstairs and yeah and it was awesome it has all this prestige associate associated with it but like all i did literally eight hours a day was file invoices for photographs and it was like the most mind-numbing job I had ever had I was meant to be grateful for that job and and in some ways I was but I was also like paying like I was working for free and I was paying the university for school credit (laughs) so basically I I paid like three thousand dollars to file invoices eight hours a day and coffee was like such a beautiful alternative to that I think all of those weird things I did like I tutored at a writing center. I taught undergraduate classes at, in Florida. I worked at the international version of National Geographic Kids Magazine. I was a barista. I, oh, I interned one fall at the National Endowment for the Arts.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And basically, like, I got to sit in on the panels where they decide who gets grants. And I got to all writers and tell them they just won $20,000 which is like the most delightful thing but I just had this like huge diverse sample of things that I could do that were maybe or maybe not related to writing but all of them I think were good
0: yeah we talk about this on the podcast sometimes or like I do but you just haven't been alive long enough and like you want everything (laughs) you want to have like the experience of, like, a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old, and it's just, there's there's nothing you can do except just keep, keep going.
1: Yeah, I just had, like, no patience. I I think I constantly felt like I was waiting for my life to start, and that, you know, like, it would start whenever I, like, sort of dealt with my long-distance relationship, or it would start whenever I, like, finally published something, or it would start you know, like when I graduated, but the reality was like, I was living my life and, and it was what it was. And I could have like enjoyed it quite a bit more if I wasn't trying so hard to be a person in the world. (laughs) Yeah. This is sort of like fast forwarding a little bit, but one of the best things that I did was start a blog, Mm -hmm. which, which was like such a small thing to do. And blogs are like, not cool. I totally understand that. But it it like benefited my career in such enormous ways. And like one way was just that this thing I was doing. So I decided I wanted to write this book about romantic love and I had no idea what it would look like or what shape it would take. It was I just felt like so okay, I'm gonna write about this and who knows what it will be. Mm -hmm. Um I thought, well I'll just make a blog as a way to play with ideas as I go along, and I don't care if anybody reads it. Oh, and I signed up for a Facebook account, which I had put off getting forever. And so, like, in 2011, I was, like, 29, I started this blog, and it took this really solitary thing that I was doing, which was just, like, sitting around with my computer and sending things off to literary journals and then, like, receiving a copy in the mail and feeling just, like, you know, no sense of, like, connect. A reader Mm -hmm. thing. so like I just would post it on Facebook and my friends would would reply but it was like suddenly when as I was going about my life I would have conversations about what I was writing with my friends and people would send me interesting articles and it was suddenly like this tiny solitary lonely world of writing became bigger and more social and by the time I was ready to like publish a book, many years later, many years later, I had this whole long compendium of of writing samples that I could say, like, hey, like, I." so I published something in the New York Times Modern Love column in 2015. And it was like, I was going to publish it on my blog. And I thought, this is like a good story. Yeah, I should see if someone will pay me to write about this. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Which was like a good instinct, because... Because someone did want to pay me. And, you know, I think, like, the, the thing worth knowing about this is that, like, I initially pitched it somewhere else. I pitched it to Salon. And it was, like, much longer. It was, like, 3,000 words. And I never heard back from them. Um, mm-hmm. Well, the editor initially seemed interested. And then she never got back to me. And finally I thought, okay, well, I'm writing about love. I've always thought eventually I would pitch something to Modern Love. Let me see if I can cut this length by half and come up with something to send them. And and I
0: did, and initially I did not hear back from the editor. And basically... Side note, this is a good example of just how long the pitching and publishing process takes. If you're wondering if it's just you, it's not. So for
1: anyone who doesn't know, like I wrote this article about trying to study designed to create romantic love in the laboratory using... 36 increasingly personal questions and then staring into someone's eyes for four minutes. And I did this on a first date. And so like I wrote, I wrote about the experience of doing the study. And then, you know, in the last paragraph, I was like, you're probably wondering if he and I are in love and the answer is I don't know because when I wrote it, I, I didn't know, like we're still sort of sorting things out. And then in between the time I first sent it to modern love and You know, a few weeks in, like, our relationship had gotten more serious. And I thought, if he decides to publish this, and it's me saying, like, I don't know if we're in love or not, that would be weird. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Embarrassing. Um, So I, I, like, revised the ending and sent it back to him, like, a month later. And he got back to me, like, two days later. And he published it, and that column was really widely read, which was a great benefit to me and I think like starting the blog you know had just like set me up to ultimately end up in this position where I could write about love in like a thoughtful complex way that I could not have done six years earlier when I started that blog at the end of my 20s and also then when editors like googled me after that column was published then they could see that I had done all this work and that I had all this Writing behind me, and that I was, it wasn't just like a one off thing. I didn't know any of this when I started the blog. Obviously, I couldn't possibly have imagined it. And I just was like, was so grateful to like younger Mandy for, for like pushing through the fear of sharing kind of unpolished work with my peers and just like deciding to do it.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's a big theme of this podcast, even. It's just, having sort of the courage to try it, um, not really knowing where something is going to go. So when you started The Bog, you kind of knew that you wanted to write a book about love. When you wrote the Modern Love essay and it got like millions of hits, was that the point where you were kind of like, you know, this is kind of what the my book now, my memoir and essays is going to be about? No, I had the idea, like,
1: let's see, so that was 2015. I had the idea whenever my parents divorced. I came up okay. with the idea the year after my parents divorced. So that would have been 2007. <laughs> so <it was> like, <laughs> uh, like, when I was in grad school, I always tell this story because it feels important. I was paid a sort of nominal sum. to, um, edit the alumni newsletter. So I basically had to like, had to put together everyone's updates and what they were doing. And this guy would always, he wrote in and he would say, Oh, you know I'm not, I'm actually in real estate now, but I am using my MFA to edit this like community wine newsletter. And I just thought I'm spending so much money on this degree. Like I don't want to be like wine newsletter person good for him like doing whatever he wants to do I'm sure he has a lot more money than I have now (laughs) but I was like I I'm investing myself in this I better write a freaking book like even if no one publishes it or no one reads it or whatever like I'm at least gonna try yeah and so yeah so I graduated in 2006 and I was like now this degree it's time to write a book and I of course had like no clue how to write a book or what it would be about or whatever. And then my parents divorced and, and it was really hard for me. And it was so hard and big and I couldn't wrap my mind around what was going on. But I thought, okay, this is, this could be a book. Basically there's something going on here. And I think it's to do with the difference between like how we talk about love in our culture and like how love actually works and I think that there's something there and I had no idea like how a book about that would look or how it would work but I was like this is what I'm writing about. I actually started writing the book like three years after that and then started my blog like six months after that and then you know published it this year, well last year 2017,
0: summer of 2017. It was a really slow process. So what is sort of when you decide to write the book, what does day one look like? Do you?
1: <laughs> yeah, day one, I like walked around my neighborhood thinking about thinking about it. And then like maybe day 10, I like wrote about it in my journal. <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I I remember it like, so I my day job is is teaching English at the university. I'm, an, I'm a sessional, which is Canadian, sort of for adjunct, like I'm contract faculty. Okay. Um, and my office mate, you know, we would, he would be like, are you still working on that damn book? And I'm <laughs> like, yes. You know, I, I started teaching when I was 25. I moved to Canada because my ex, the one I was with all through my 20s, started grad school here in Vancouver so we moved here and I had no idea how to stay here as an American like I had no idea how to get a visa so I got so like teaching was one thing that would give you a visa so I, I got a job teaching for basically like three and a half months and then I was like okay that's three and a half months longer that I can stay in Canada and then I'll figure something else out
0: mm-hmm. so like it was
1: a very sort of haphazard process but I like strolled into my office on day one and my. You know, I'm like 25 years old, barely older than my students still. Yeah. And my athlete was like, oh, like, what's your deal? What do you do? And I was like, oh, I write. <laughs> Meanwhile, I like had no idea what I was going to write or what I was going to do. But I had this MFA and I was like, oh, so now I'm a writer. And so he would sort of antagonize me about this process. And, and the reality was that it was like, it was so slow. And I think it had to be slow because I was living the things that I was writing about and that's okay. You know, I would just do these like little tiny things that it would suddenly make it like seem more legitimate. So like I went to a writing residency at the Banff center for a few weeks and everyone else there had published a book and I had it. And I thought, and they would say, Oh, when you publish your book, you should do this or this. And I thought, Oh my God, these people, take it for granted that I'm going to publish a book. It felt like a miracle that this group of people just assumed I could do this. And then, and then, so I started my blog and then my friends would be like, Oh, your book sounds really interesting. And I'm like, Oh my God, these people think I'm going to write a book. And it was just like, the more I sort of tiptoed into the water of writing a book, the more I was able to take myself seriously. But I think it took literally like that whole decade or maybe like first eight years
0: to, like, really believe that
1: this was a project that I was getting into. Yeah.
0: Was it sort of, like, you needed to kind of build up the confidence to really do it? Yeah, I felt totally intimidated. And I also just thought, like,
1: this whole industry is, like, it's such a long shot getting something published. And, it, you know, I had this manuscript by the time I published that Modern Love column. And the manuscript was, like, a total disaster. But it was, like, I had a manuscript. And so when I got to the point where people were actually interested in talking to me about publishing something, I was like, well, I've got this thing and like it's messy and whatever. But like all the ideas were there, which, again, I think it's like E.M. Forster's says that quote about like, Ugh, I'm going to get it wrong. I should look it up. But it's basically like the one about how you can go as far as your headlights can see, but like mm-hmm. you'll you can make the whole journey that way, which I find like a really apt metaphor for the writing process, which is like
0: I'm pausing here to throw out that I too love that quote. I was at this event recently and Chloe Benjamin was reading from her novel The Immortalists, and she too cited this quote. It was one that kept her going through that long process of writing a book. I'm not surprised that these two really talented writers keep that quote in their back pockets. It's just so poignant. It's, I believe, actually by E.L. Doctorow. Writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. The reason I love it is it's not just about novel writing or writing nonfiction or even writing. It's about your career in your 20s. It's about your career your whole life. It's about life, to be honest. Yeah, that's great. Do you remember any particular moments in those in that like span of years and years where you felt like giving up?
1: You know, I I quit. At one point I just quit mm-hmm. writing. And I remember I went to this retreat. And Cheryl Strade was there. And like, you know, I had no money, but I was like, okay, I'm gonna like take all my sort of saved up whatever and like splurge to go to this retreat. I'll like drive myself there. And, you know, because I was like, Cheryl sure, straight there. I just want to, like, hear her speak. And yeah. she gave this talk. And then at the end, she answered questions. And I remember raising my hand and saying, what advice do you have for someone who has, like, been writing on a project for years? And, like, one day you're suddenly just grossed out by your own voice. <laughs> 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 and I was like, because that's how I've been feeling and I have no idea what she said, but I remember feeling so unsatisfied. And what I eventually ended up doing was just deciding to stop. Because I would have a little bit of time off in the summer from mm-hmm. teaching and my schedule would be more flexible. So I would like really focus on like, I think like 2013 my goal for that summer was to like have a complete draft of a manuscript. And, and finally I was like, you know what? I hate this, I hate how it sounds, I hate what I'm doing. I'm going to just like give myself permission to not finish this. And I bought a plane ticket, like a super cheap last minute plane ticket to Texas and went and spent a week with one of my best friends doing like literally nothing. And it was great. (laughs) And then I started school and I thought, okay, now it's back to the school year. I'm not going to even think about this until January. I'm just taking like the rest of the year off and I'll just like read and that's what I did. And in that time period, I read uh, Rebecca Solnitz, The Far Away Nearby. And suddenly I was like, oh, this is the kind of book I want to write. Like, this is the structure that my book will have. And so then I started structuring my book that way. And and by, I think, like July 1st, I had like a new manuscript. And of course, that structure has absolutely nothing to do with the final structure of my book. But it just like, move me forward like a tiny bit more.
0: In this podcast, we talk a lot about persistence, but I really appreciate this refreshing story about knowing when you just need a break. It's hard to remember sometimes you're not working in a vacuum. You might need a break because the work itself just isn't working like in Mandy's case. Or you might need to take a break because there are other things going on in your life that you need to give attention to. I think we need to stop beating ourselves up about that while still committing to finishing the job.
1: The thing that I have learned looking back is like the things that sort of go on to like provide useful career opportunities are often like accidents or things that I didn't necessarily think would be interesting to me. But like so so much of this stuff has paid off later on in unexpected ways. For example, when I um, moved to Canada, when I moved to Vancouver, and I was like, how the hell am I going to live in this country? I basically like had I had a meeting with a woman who runs the writing center at the University of British Columbia because I had worked as a writing tutor and I, I just sat down and was like, you know, I've got this MFA in creative writing, I have this writing tutor experience. Like, do you need anyone? And she was like, No. I was like, Okay. <laughs> Thought I would ask. But then like a few months later, she invited me to come give a one night presentation on writing creative nonfiction. And then, like, a year later, she hired me to teach a nonfiction writing class. And so, like, these little things, like, planting all these little seeds, who knows, like, what's going to sprout? This is, like, the worst cliche metaphor. But, like, <laughs> you know, I think it really is true. Like, Malcolm Gladwell, I don't know if you've read his essay about, like, weak ties and how, like, it's our, like, connections with acquaintances that ultimately, like, lead to interesting opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a great essay, but I feel like when I look back on my 20s, I see all these weak ties that have now like paid off in really interesting ways, which is great.
0: Yeah, I love that. It might just take like a little bit of time, but it never hurts. It might take like a long time, even. Yeah. Yeah. And that's
1: okay. this is pretty personal but I think it's it's appropriate and legitimate and it's maybe like one of the ideas that's at the heart of my book which is like you know really when I was in my 20s and I was trying to figure out how to be a person in the world like I don't think I really realized this but I had this idea that like if I sort of attached myself to other interesting people then like suddenly I would become interesting and I would like I would matter I would like count somehow and like my primary way of doing that was like through my romantic relationship like I thought this guy that that I had fallen in love with was like just a cool interesting person like he was in the Peace Corps and he had traveled around the world and he he you know spoke multiple languages and I was like you know that's the kind of person that I Would like to be and like if I just attach myself to him like people will know or they'll figure out that like I'm interesting and really like if I could go back and do it differently I think I would just like invest more seriously in like my own interests like I think about all the time that I spent investing in like things that he thought were cool was cool and like you know, I wish I had just said like fuck it. I like I'm going to be a writer and I, and and like writing is a legitimate way to spend my time. And a legitimate like it's a perfectly okay to say like, "Oh, I'm a writer," even if you haven't published anything. Like like it is an appropriate, interesting, valid thing to declare yourself to be and to put your time into.
0: say thank you so much to mandy again please pick up her book how to fall in love with anyone read her modern love column and follow her on twitter her handle is at Len mandy. i cannot wait to read what she writes next okay that's it for now thanks for listening and i'll see you next time